In 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement saw a huge outpouring of support around the world. There were countless voices that hit the streets. There was a collective outcry against so many incidents of racial injustice. One of those voices was that of a Black man. He calls himself Stat the Artist. And last June, Stat was hit with a realization about the art that he'd been making. Oh my gosh, uh, yeah, I remember exactly where I was. I was in Capitol Hill, down by Cal Anderson Park. And uh, I was looking around at the signs. I was like, okay, cool, just just seeing what every, everyone was out here uh, doing. I'm sure you can imagine it. Picture Stat at a huge protest in a Seattle city park. It probably sounded something like this. There's people everywhere, chanting, shouting, singing. You had, like, street vendors out there giving out free food. You had artists that came out there, you know, singing and chants. Say her name, Breonna Taylor. Say her name, Breonna Taylor. That's, that's kind of like the rhythm that they were going. And, and say his name, George Floyd. Say his name, George Floyd. Say his name, George Floyd. On the outer edges, there are tense standoffs with the police. People were pretty much in a protective stance of, look, we're going to come out here, we're going to make our voices heard, but at the same time, we're prepared to get tear gassed and everything. And there's protest signs everywhere. Black Lives Matter, defund the police, no justice, no peace. And it's those protest signs that catch Stat's eye. And one protest sign specifically. And then I saw the piece. I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. I had to do a double take. I was like, I look around and I see uh, the Breonna Taylor poster. Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old black woman from Louisville, Kentucky. A black woman unjustly killed by police. A woman whose name this protest movement demands that we say out loud and that we never forget. And here, on a protest sign, was a beautiful, colorful, bright illustration of a smiling Breonna Taylor. But what really stops Stat in his tracks is this. He's the artist who drew it. That portrait is an image straight from Stat's Instagram account. Like, someone really took the time to print out the artwork, go somewhere, blow it up, and take it out to a protest. I mean, it was an unbelievable feeling. Um, still, still getting chills uh, talking about that moment. Just, just seeing, seeing the impact that someone actually took the time to uh, use it to represent themselves in a protest. So Stat snaps a quick photo of what he's seeing, and then he realizes that the art that he posted online it really mattered even more than he had thought. And that's what we're leaning into on today's episode: the role that art and design can play in supporting the fight for racial justice and in dismantling systemic racism. Design. Creativity. Wireframe. A podcast from Adobe. I'm Koi Vin, Senior Director of Design at Adobe. And Stat the Artist, well, his real name is Teddy Phillips. He's a software engineer in Seattle. Stat's work as an artist those digital illustrations that he posts on Instagram, that's all still very new to him. His at Stat the Artist Instagram page launched just last January. Yeah, January 18th of 2020. You can find a link to his page in the show notes to this episode. 
Now, Stat's work is digital, but it looks and it feels a bit like street art. It's bright and bold. You can imagine backgrounds that are giant blocks of colors, pinks, purples, teals, and yellows, and blues, too. The portraits themselves are drawn simply with exaggerated shadows and contrasts. And at first, he's featuring black icons. There's Martin Luther King in a light purple suit. There's Tupac, Fresh Prince, Kobe. There's one of Beyonce flipping two middle fingers. Most of his time, his subjects are smiling. But then the protests begin. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was living on like one of the busiest streets in Seattle, Pike Street, and protests would just come by every day trying to fight for justice and try to raise awareness. And, and at a certain point, it becomes infectious. And there was a chant, out of your house and into the streets, out of your house and into the streets. And joining in the protest was something that I wanted to do and, and something I did quite often. So on the one hand, Stat is out on the streets demanding justice. And on the other, he's posting pop culture images on Instagram. And that doesn't feel quite right anymore. Stat wants his art to reflect how he's feeling. But I wanted to use my talents that I just started to, to try to bring light to some of these causes. And then Stat learns of Ahmad Arbery, another young black man killed. This time, while out on a neighborhood jog in a town in Georgia. Another name the movement demands that we say out loud and that we never forget. So Stat decides the best way he can honor Ahmad is to draw his portrait. Yeah, this one, I just took his, uh, I think it was his high school photo. And this is the only one that had a halo on it. In this portrait, Ahmad is staring directly at you. It's Stat's version of the photo that we've all seen online. Ahmad is smiling and he's wearing a tux. And Stat added the halo. I think he looks great and awesome. And I think this is something that I would want someone to use if they were honoring me. So yeah, so just going in, and it's just regular vector art. But I wanted to do the colors to make it pop when it went down someone's feet. And at the bottom, in bold purple letters, it says, Ahmad is the culture, and we demand justice in his name. And I didn't release it. It was, it was super painful to actually look at that to finish it, and then be able to put it out and release it. And I, I just tucked it in and... I just kept thinking about other stuff. But then after the George Floyd um, situation happened, then I was like, no, I, I have to release this and, and try to bring more awareness to, to these people. They, they deserve a lot better than that. So, so I started releasing those and that became part of my Justice series. His Justice series includes Breonna Taylor, that image that he saw at that protest in June. That was the moment when he realized his art had become activism. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't see it at first because I saw myself as an artist. And then I saw the activists as more like the, the Martin Luther Kings, the people that, you know, are boosts on the ground every single day. And I was like, you know, I'll just do art, whatever. But once, once someone kind of educated me, it's like, you know, you don't have to be like this one great speaker. You can, you can speak through illustrations. You can speak through art. You can speak through um, signs. You can speak through calligraphy. And I was like, oh, I, I never thought about that. So before we continue this episode, I want to bring on our two producers, Pippa Johnstone and Dominic Gerard. Hi, Koi. So I am obviously looking at Stat's Instagram feed right now. 
And I see he's continued to post tributes to other black people who deserve justice for their deaths. Yeah, yeah. There's also a portrait from March of a young Asian woman. And stamped out in big, bold letters, it says, Stop Asian Hate. Mm. I think it's really worth highlighting how expressive his work is. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to forget that acts of protests aren't always purely fueled by anger. I mean, anger is powerful and it's justified. Mm. But Stat's work reminds us that there's also a place, really a need for lightness and beauty and joy in this movement. And Stat's awakening really proves that out. I came to the realization that I actually did have a voice and people did listen. And uh, that's something that I actually wanted to keep going on. Because I'm not the most vocal person, but uh, I think art allows me to have some type of voice to uplift certain things that I believe in. What Stat just said, it's one of the reasons why I think the three of us, we really wanted to make a space here on Wireframe to host this conversation, right? I mean, we wanted to listen and learn how design and art can help a social movement like Black Lives Matter and help with the push against systemic racism. Right. Stat's story is about one person finding his voice in the Black Lives Matter movement, but BLM is massive, right? It has thousands and thousands of voices, and it needs all of them. They're all essential. The support is international, with everyone around the world rallying behind those three simple words. Mm, yeah, and the logo, it's something we can all picture, yeah? The words, black lives matter, stacked on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And then there's three yellow, solid, horizontal lines underneath. Yeah, that's what the official logo looks like today, but... There was an earlier version of it before, and Pippa, you looked into the roots of that one, right? That's right. And I wanted to learn two things. First, what was it like to design that original logo? Mm -hmm. And second, what is it like to design branding for a social movement? So I spoke to Ivy Klimakosa about this and about the original BLM logo design. My name is Ivy Klimakosa. I am a worker owner at Design Action Collective. Design Action Collective is an Oakland-based graphic design studio. It's been around for nearly 20 years. We do um, design and um, web development for nonprofit and grassroots social justice-based organizations. So for context... Black Lives Matter, the name, it started as a hashtag. Three women co-founded the movement from that hashtag, and then they launched a Tumblr page. This was 2013, and they realized we probably need some kind of logo. And so when there was a need to create a unifying mark for BLM, they turned to us to be able to kind of execute it fairly fast. And the goal for the logo was an image that was really easy to reproduce and had the urgency and the dignity and would be super legible in high contrast um, and just clear lettering and can be seen at a small size or held as a like a, a poster at a protest. This is such a different design consideration than designing a brand for a private company, isn't it? It's not like this is a logo to help people identify a car company or buy a hamburger. It's got to speak to a lot of people and kind of has to speak for those people as well. Right. The goals are different. You want the people to want to have affinity with the Asheville brand. And you want to invite people into like kind of like creating that brand story. So it's not a proprietary thing necessarily. Okay. So make it accessible, make it iconic, make sure people want to use it. And in this case, 
the designer only had three days to make it. Wow, that is not a lot of time. It's not. But the Design Action Collective are used to working with limited resources, so they went for it. So the identity we came up with um, was a, a letter mark with the name Black Lives Matter. And it's just all caps, yellow and black, very minimal colors, stacked together and highlighting the word lives in the middle. Yeah, that one is so memorable. There's this bold yellow background and a big black rectangle around the word lives that puts that word in this negative space and it really makes it stand out. I mean, the message is so clear and you just can't ignore it. And it's so simple too. It's easy to reproduce. You can put it on a poster, a protest sign, a badge, a t-shirt, or their Tumblr account. Because we knew that there wasn't really like a lot of funding to be able to reproduce it ourselves, that it would kind of take a life of its own. It's a little bit out of your control, right? And it's almost a compliment for people to like, to want to reproduce or mimic and spin it their own way. I mean, I think the genius of it is people could reproduce it even imperfectly and it still worked. I mean, it was still recognizable. But I wonder, like, does that take away value from the, the, the official identity? Well, to your point, there are a lot of BLM symbols out there that shape the overall visual look of this movement. There's this raised fist symbol. That's another one that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. But I'd say there's plenty of value in having something canonical to look at. Yeah, it's about having just one thing that states the message crystal clear. If the goal is to like be able to communicate effectively the calls of your organization, then sometimes it needs something that's a little bit more polished and less cluttered and like just a different style and tone because it's at the service of really trying to tell your story. That is a key part of design, helping you to tell your story. But if this is a story about systemic racism, then we have to acknowledge design has work to do as well. It really has to look inward. Because frankly, the design world isn't as diverse as it needs to be. It's predominantly white and it's mostly male at that. Yeah, Yeah, and there's data to back that up too. I, I looked this up earlier. In 2019, the AIGA, that's the Professional Association for Design, they released results of a design census. About 9,500 people responded to this census. 71% identified as white or Caucasian. 9% said they were Asian. 8% said Hispanic or Latinx. And only 3% were Black. Yeah, I'm not really surprised by that at all. I mean, we see this disparity even when we're trying to make this show, when we're trying to make Wireframe, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're always looking to highlight the work of racialized designers on the show. And as we keep trying to do better, we really see firsthand how much this field has so much more work to do yet. Mm-hmm. Totally. At the same time, while it's on every one of us to do the work here, I had this amazing conversation with someone who can show all of us how to do it. Her name is Dory Tunstall, and she's the Dean of the Faculty of Design at OCAD University in Toronto. And I found this a little shocking. She is the world's first Black Dean of a design school. Wow. I mean, that's something that seems just so obviously overdue. Yeah, yeah. But also, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, totally. And the way that she puts it, her work to change the system, it doesn't happen on the street. It happens in the classroom. 
I'm very introverted, so I actually don't do very well with street protests. (laughs) I always say to my students, I will help you do the posters, the flyers. I will bail you out of jail (laughs) if I need to. But I will not be on the streets with you as you're marching because you don't want to have to deal with the level of anxiety that I will be experiencing by trying to be out on the streets with you. So I contribute through design, right? That's amazing. Yeah. And that's just where our conversation started. Because Dory is on this mission to really decolonize design. She talks about how we often have this very narrow, white, European view of what good design looks like. And also about how making distinctions between art, craft, or design doesn't help us. One of the things that I find um, just fascinating in terms of the reporting that happens on like Black Lives Matter is that they focus on the art. So if you look to a certain extent of what got reported on, it's the street murals that people did, like Black Lives Matter has been painted outside of the White House. Mm -hmm. The illustrations that were created of like Breonna Taylor that circulated around through social media, but they, they weren't talked about in terms of design. They weren't talked about as a form of communication <laughs> with a call to action. And for me, the implications of that is when I'm trying to convince my Black, Indigenous, and POC designers that design has a space for them. If they are gravitating towards protests, if they're gravitating towards using their creative abilities to make these kinds of change, then they'll think they have to be artists in order to be able to do that and not think that they're actually speaking within a design vocabulary. And that to me is always a tragedy because it means it makes it more difficult for me to recruit more young, you know, racialized and indigenous folks to consider design as a profession and make a difference for their communities. Yeah, that takes us right back to Stat's story at the top of the episode, right? Stat considers his work art. He calls himself Stat the artist. But under Dory's definition, I guess he's also a designer. Yeah, that's right. And Dory says that that distinction between art and design, it can really be a problem because it creates a hierarchy of value. And that hierarchy ties right back to racism. The distinction between art, design, and craft is a colonial distinction. (laughs) If I pay $20,000 for it, it's art. If I pay $200 for it, it's design. And if I pay $20 for it on the side of the road, outside of some village, then it's craft. And it can all be the same object. And that's a very European history of the differences in these ways of engaging. But in most places in the rest of the world, you didn't have those distinctions between art, design, and craft. In fact, in many languages, you know, like we talk about in um, indigenous languages here, there's no word that describes those three things in a separate way. Yeah. So in some ways, is that um, that distinction is is part of colonization. And what I'm really interested in is is that there not be a hierarchy that's attached to it. So how much of a systemic race problem does the design field have, would you say? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I go around saying at many, many presentations that, you know, the values of design are colonial, white supremacist, patriarchal, and capitalist. And that means in many ways, the design in the way that it's been imagined has been really quite harmful 
um, and harmful in very particular ways because one of the challenges we face in design education is that many of our students feel like they have to give up their identities if they're diverse in order to be a professional designer, meaning that they have to somehow embody the identity of a you know, Swiss Christian male <laughs> right. of, a, of the age of 50 um, in order to be seen and recognized. And the demographics show that. So it's not that they're imagining the fact that they have to embody this white male Europeanness as a mode of being successful, but it means that um, you're saying, give up your Anishinaabe-ness if you're indigenous, give up your blackness yeah. um, if you're Nigerian who've been brought over, you know, as enslaved people to these other places, give up your Chinese-ness, give up your Vietnamese-ness yeah. in order to fit into this universal notion, which is not universal because it's based on this model of a European man, right? Yeah. So I'm Vietnamese myself, and I underwent the exact transformation that you described. I basically have never really studied what it would mean to be a Vietnamese designer. I've always looked at the the main reference point as being a, like a Swiss or modernist, mm -hmm. Western European or North American white male kind of perspective on design. And what you're describing, it's so fascinating because it means that that baseline is thrown away and we either have a new baseline or we have some entirely different paradigm. I'm interested in the new paradigm because what I what we learned this right when we talk about biodiversity and environmental that you could have maximum difference, right? Optimized difference, but it's not hierarchical. It's all relational to each other. That the differences is actually what allows the ecosystem to survive because you have adaptability, right? So what I'm interested in in design is that we have maximum differences and we celebrate those differences. We just sort of say, this is you coming from a time and a place and these influences. And isn't that wonderful and amazing? Because this is me coming from this and that. And so that, again, it's the desire to rank one higher than the other, that the problem comes, the injustice comes. Oh, I love how this idea of, of embracing maximum difference can, can lead to like a more creative future for design. But reframing the future of design, it won't happen overnight. No, it really won't. But you know what's exciting is how Dory says that her students are already showing the way forward. We have every year a graduate exhibition, and it's always so exciting to see the students work. And as we've brought in this process of decolonization and this focus on diversity and equity, the projects that I saw four years ago, many of them were actually quite similar, right, in the way they look, in the way they felt, in their quote-unquote level of professionalism, when I go and I see the work that was done, you know, last year or the year before, it, everything totally looks different because they're drawing their inspiration from, you know, like my my Filipina grandmother's recipe book. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I'm gonna I'm gonna create a typeface that's related to the handwritten notes that my grandmother put in 
the the cookbook, right? And the students feel free and the students feel recognized and the students feel that who they are is appreciated, both in terms of like their families and their communities who now understand what it is that they do because it's connected to them. Um, and also those who may not be from that community or culture gain appreciation for the beauty and the intelligence that are behind those designs. Wow. I mean, the potential impact of Dory's work is kind of incredible, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these students will be designers someday, and then they're going to bring these design values with them. Which means that they'll be able to reform design from the inside. Yeah, that's right. I'm against any system of oppression, and the advantage you have as a designer in some ways is that you have the knowledge and the tools of effective communication to be able to get people to to change and move and think and connect and all of these things that, again, are important to making the world a more just place. Design superpower is it makes tangible human ideals so that people can experience them, negotiate them, understand them, right? So I can use words that are just spoken words, but maybe until you put that word on a poster with a particular choice of typeface, I may not know exactly what you were meaning by that word and I was meaning about the word until we're having a negotiation as to whether or not this is the appropriate expression of that word. So for me, that's like a superpower because part of our conflicts that we have in society is because we're not understanding each other's words. We're not understanding each other's values. We're not understanding each other's meaning. And so anything that can bring you closer to that shared understanding, shared communication, can be part of a liberatory practice. I really like what Dory had to say about like what you call the superpower of design and how it makes human ideals tangible to people. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, it's the same as what we've been saying about design all along, that it seeks to make people's lives better. But it's also this very different take than the usual, because in a way, what Dory is saying is that design itself needs to change in order to truly live up to its potential. Hmm. Do you feel like you've been thinking differently about your work as a designer since that conversation? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I followed the Black Lives Matter movement pretty keenly over the past year or so. But I'll admit, I haven't done a lot of thinking about these cultural defaults in my very own profession or in myself, for that matter. And talking to Dory reminded me that street protests are just one way to combat racial inequity. I mean, street protests are powerful and they are an important part of democracy. You can draw a line from the street right into the courtroom where Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murdering George Floyd. And that gives this movement some hope and some justice. But it's not the only way to tackle racism. I mean, it can't be. So whether you're an artist like Stat or a student or a BLM brand designer or a podcast producer or a professional designer, myself included, the truth is that every one of us, we have to do the work. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope it's given you a lot to think about and to feel hopeful about and maybe to build into your own creative practice. 
We encourage you to support Black Lives Matter however you can and help the campaign to stop Asian hate. And actually take some advice from Stat the Artist. Just create, create, create. I tell everyone, create. Nothing's ugly. Um, put it out there and, uh, and, and see where it goes. Wireframe is produced by Pippa Johnstone and Dominic Girard. Our sound designer is Christian Proholm. And a special thanks to sound designer Ryan Clark for lending us your ears on this one. If you want to know how Adobe is working to address inequality, you can find a link in this episode's show notes. I'm Koi Vin, and this is Wireframe, a podcast from Adobe. Adobe.